Chapter Forty of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter Forty. Bathing weather again, and a letter from Tishy Bradshaw. The triumph of Orpheus. But was it Eurydice or the little battery? The Reverend Mister Herrick, of a reverie under a bathing machine, and of Gwendolen's mamma's connecting link of Dr. Conrad's mamma's donkey-chair, and his great-aunt Eliza, how Sally and he started for their last walk at St. Sennans. The next day the morning was bright, and the sea was clear of Poseidon's ponies. They had gone somewhere else. Therefore it behooved Mrs. Lobjoit to get breakfast quick, because it was absurd to expect anybody to go in directly after, and the water wouldn't be good later than half-past ten which Sally, coming downstairs at eight, impressed on Mrs. Lobjoit, who entered her own recognizances, that it should appear as by magic the very minute your mamma came down. For it is one of the pleasures of anticipation of a joy to come, to bring about its antecedents too soon, and so procure a blank period of unqualified existence to indulge hope in without alloy. Even so, when true prudence wishes to catch a train, she orders her cab an hour before, and takes tickets twenty minutes before, and arrives on the platform eighteen minutes before there is the slightest necessity to do so, and then she stands on the said platform, and lives for the train that is to be, and inquires of every guard, ticket-taker, and pointsman, with respect to every linear yard of the platform edge, whether her train is going to come up there, and they ask each other questions, and give prismatic information, and then the train for paradise, let us say, comes reluctantly backwards into the station, with friends standing on its margin, and Prudence seizes her valise, and goes at hand-gallop to the other end, where the nth class is, and is only just in time to get a corner seat. So though there was no fear of the tide going out as fast as the train for paradise, Sally, relying on Mrs. Lobjoit, who had become a very old friend in eight weeks, felt she had done well to be beforehand, and as breakfast would be twenty minutes, sat down to write a letter to Tishy. She wrote epistle-wise, heedless of style and stops, and as her mother was also twenty minutes—we are not responsible for these expressions—she wrote a heap of it. Then events thickened, as Fenwick, returning from an early dip, met the postman outside, and came in bearing an expected letter, which Sally pounced upon. "'All about the row,' said she attacking an impregnable corner of the envelope with a fork-point, in a fever of impatience to get at the contents. "'Hang these envelopes! There, that's done it! Whatever they want to sticky them up so for, I can't imagine!' "'Get your breakfast, kitten, and read it after.' "'I dare say. Catch me! No, I'm the sort that never waits for anything. No, Mommy darling, it shan't get cold. I can gormandise and read aloud both at once.' But she doesn't keep her promise, for she dives straight into an exploration ahead, and meanly says, "'Just half a minute till I see what's coming,' or "'Only to the end of this sentence,' and also looks very keen and animated, and throws in short notes of exclamation, and "'Wells!' and "'There's!' and "'Think of that!' till Fenwick enters a protest. "'Don't cheat, Sarah,' he says. "'Play fair. If you won't read it aloud yourself, let somebody else.' "'There's the first sheet to keep you quiet, Jeremiah.' Who, however, throws it over to Rosalind, who throws it back with a laugh. "'What a couple of big babies you two are!' she exclaims. 
as if I couldn't possess my soul in peace for five minutes. Do put the letter by till you've had your breakfasts. But this, of course, was not approved, and the contents of Letitia's epistle came out by fits and jerks and starts, and may be said to have been mixed with tea and coffee and eggs and bacon and toast. Perhaps we had better leave these out, and give the letter intact. Here it is. Dearest Sally, I'm going to keep my promise, and write you a long letter at once, and tell you all about our reception at home. You will say it wasn't worth writing, especially as you'll be back on Monday. However, a promise is a promise. We got to Victoria at seven, and were not so very late, considering, at Georgiana Terrace, but when we had had something to eat I propounded my idea I told you of, that we should just go straight on, and beard Mamma in her own den and have it out. I knew I shouldn't sleep unless we did. Paggy said, wouldn't it do as well if he called there to-morrow for the Strad, which we left behind last time as a connecting link to go and fetch away, and me to meet him as he came from the shop. But surprise tactics were better, I knew they would be, and now Paggy admits I was right. Of course Thomas stared when he saw who it was, and was going to sneak off without announcing us, and Fawcett, who just crossed us in the passage, was perfectly comic. Pag said afterwards she was bubbling over with undemonstrativeness, which was clever for him. I simply said to Thomas that I thought he had better announce us, as we weren't expected, and he asked who he was to announce, Miss. Actually, I was rather relieved when Pag said, "'Say, Mr. and Mrs. Julius Bradshaw.' I should have laughed, I know. Thomas looked a model of discretion that wouldn't commit itself either way, and did as he was bid in an apologetic voice, but he turned round on the stairs to say to me, "'I suppose you know, ma'am, there's two ladies and a gentleman been dining here?' Because he began Miss and ended ma'am, and then turned scarlet. Pag said after, he thought Thomas wanted to caution us against a bigger mist Mamma was harbouring. Papa was very nice, really. His allusion to our little escapade was the only one made, and might have meant nothing at all. "'Well, you're a nice couple of people, upon my word!' And then, seeing that Mamma remained a block, which she can, he introduced Paggy to one of the two ladies as my son-in-law, Mr. Julius Bradshaw. I'm sure Mamma gave a wooden snort, and was ashamed of it before visitors, because she did another, rather more probable one, directly after, and pretended it was only that sort. Really, except for a peck for me, and saying howd and nothing more to Paggy, she kept herself to herself, but it didn't matter because of what happened. Really, it quite made me jump. I mean the way the lady Pag was introduced to rushed into his arms. I wasn't sure I hadn't better take him away at once. She was a celebrated German pianist that had accompanied him in Paris. Mamma was at school with her in Frankfurt. She had been inconsolable at the disappearance of the great Carissimi, whose playing of the Kreutzer was the only perfectly sympathetic one she had ever met. Was she never to play it with him again? Alas, no, for she was off to Vienna to-morrow, and then to New York, and if the ship went down she would never play the Kreutzer with Signore Carissimi again. I saw Papa's eye looking mischievous, and then he pointed to the Strad where it was lying on the piano, locked up safe, we saw to that and said, there was Paganini's fiddle, why not play the cruet stand, or whatever you called it, now? Mamma found her voice, but lost her judgment, for she tried to block the performance on a fibby ground. Think how late it was, and how it would be keeping Madame von Hoffenhofer. She put her head in the lion's mouth there, 
for the Frau immediately said she would play all night rather than lose a note of Signore Carissimi. The other two went, and nobody wanted them. I've forgotten the woman's second husband's name. He's dead, but her son's the man I told you about. Of course he hadn't expected to meet me, and I hope he felt like a fool. I was so glad it wasn't him but Paggy. They played right through the Kreutzer, and didn't want the music, which couldn't be found, and then did bits again, and it was absolutely glorious. Even Mamma, she's fond of music, it's her only good quality, and where should I get mine from if she wasn't? Couldn't stop quite stony, though she did her best, I promise you. As for Papa, he was chuckling so over Mamma's dilemma, because she wanted to trample on Paggy, and it was a dilemma, that he didn't care for how long it went on. And do you know, dear, it did go on. One thing after another, that Frau glued to the clavier like a limpet not detachable without violence, till nearly one in the morning, having gun at ten, about. And there was Papa and Edgerton and Theeny all sniggering at Mamma, I know, in secret, and really proud of the connection, if the truth were known. Mamma tried to get a little revenge by saying to me freezingly, when the Hoffenhofer had gone, "'I suppose you're going home with Mr. Bradshaw, Letitia. Good night.' And then she said good night to Paggy, just as she said how. I thought Paggy behaved so nicely. However, I'll tell you about that on Monday. Papa was very nice, came out on the doorstep to say good night, and do you know, it really is very odd. It must be the sea air. Papa said to Paggy as we were starting, "'How's the head? The nerves, you know, eh, Master Julius?' And actually, Paggy said, Why, God bless my soul, I had forgotten all about them. Oh, Sally, darling, just think. Suppose they got well, and all because I treated him to a honeymoon. Oh, my gracious, what a long letter. There now, that is a letter and a half. With love from us both, mine affectionately, and twelve pages, and Tishy's hand not so large, neither as all that. This is Sally, as epilogue, but her mother puts in a correction. It's thirteen pages. There's a bit on a loose page you haven't read. Sally has seen that, and it was nothing, so she says, but Fenwick picks it up and reads it aloud. P.S. Just a line to say I've remembered that name. She's Herrick, married a parson in India soon after her Penderfield husband died. She's great on reformatories. Sally re-read her letter with a glow of interest on her face, and a passing approval or echo now and then. She noticed nothing unusual in either her mother or her stepfather, but she did not look up, so absorbed was she. Had she done so, she might have wondered why her mother had gone so pale suddenly, and why there should be that puzzled, absent look on the handsome face her eyes remained fixed on across the table. But her own mind was far away, deep in her amusement at her friend's letter, full of her image of the disconcerted dragon, and the way Paganini and Beethoven, in alliance, had ridden roughshod over Mrs. Grundy and social distinctions. She saw nothing, and finished a cup of coffee undisturbed, and asked for more. Fenwick, caught by some memory or association he could not define or give its place to, for the moment looked at neither of his companions. Rosalind, only too clear about all the postscript of the letter had brought before her own mind, saw reason to dread its effect on his. The linking of the name of Penderfield and that of the clergyman who had married them at Umbala, a name that two days since had had a familiar sound to him when she incautiously uttered it, 
was using suggestion to bait a trap for memory. She felt she was steering through shoal waters perilously near the wind, but she made no attempt to break his reverie. She might do as much harm as good. She only watched his face, feeling its contrast to that of the absorbed and happy Merpussy, rejoicing in the fortunate outcome of her friend's anxieties. It was a great relief when, with a deep breath and a shake, akin to a horse's when the flies won't take a hint, Fenwick flung off the oppression, whatever it was, and came back into the living world on a stepping-stone of the back-talk. "'Well done, Paganini! Nothing like it since Orpheus and Eurydice. Only this time it was Proserpine, not Pluto, that had to be put to sleep. What's the matter, darling? Anything wrong?' "'Nothing at all. I was looking at you.' "'Well, I'm all right.' And Sally looked up from her letter for a moment to say, "'There's nothing the matter with Jeremiah,' and went on reading as before. Sally's attitude about him always implied a kind of proprietorship, as in a large, fairly well-behaved dog. Rosalind felt glad she had not looked at her. Presently Fenwick said, "'Now, who's coming for a walk with me?' But Sally was off directly to find the Swiss girl she sometimes bathed with, and Rosalind thought it would be nice in a sheltered place on the beach. She really wanted to be alone, and knew the shortest way to this was to sit still, especially in the morning, but Jerry had better get Vereker to go for a walk. Perhaps she would look in at his mother's later. So Fenwick, after a customary caution to Sally not to drown herself, went away to find Conrad, as he generally called him now. Rosalind was shirking a problem she dared not face, from a cowardly conviction of its insolubility. What would she do if Jerry should, without some warning, identify her? She had to confess to herself that she had no clue at all to the effect it would have, coming suddenly, on him. She could at least imagine aspects, attitudes, tones of voice for him if it came slowly, but she could not supply any image of him under other circumstances, not more or less founded on her recollections of twenty years ago. Might she not lose him again, as she lost him then? She must get nearer to safety than she was now. Was she not relying on the house not catching fire, instead of negotiating insurance policies or providing fire extinguishers? She would go and sit under the shelter of one of the many unemployed machines, for only a few daring spirits would follow Sally's example to-day, and try to think it out. Just a few instructions to Mrs. Lobjoit, and a word or two of caution to Jerry not to fall over cliffs, or to get run over at level crossings, or get sunstrokes, or get cold, etc., and she would fall back on her own society and think. Yes, that was the question. Might she not lose him again? And if she did, how live without him? Oh, yes, she would be no worse off than before, in a certain sense. She would have Sally still, but... Which would be the worse? The loss of the husband whom every day taught her to love more dearly, or the task of explaining the cause of her loss to Sally. The one she fixed her mind on always seemed intolerable. As for the other contingencies, difficulties of making all clear to friends and so forth, let them go, they were not worth a thought. But she must be beforehand and know how to act, how to do her best to avert both, if the thing she dreaded came to pass. There, now, here she was, settled under the lee of a machine. Happily the shadow side, for the sun was warm, and the white foam of the undertow was guilty of a tremendous glare. 
the one the people who can't endure the seaside get neuralgia from, and Sally was going to come out of the second machine directly in the turkey twill knickers and find her way through the selvage wave and the dazzle, or get knocked down and have to try back. Surely Rosalind, instead of saying over and over again that she must be ready to meet the coming evil, possibly close at hand, ought to make a serious effort to become so. She found herself, even at this early hour of the day, tired, with the strain of a misgiving that an earthquake was approaching, and as those who have lived through earthquakes become unstrung at every slightest tremor of the earth's crust beneath them, so she felt that the tension begun with that recurrence of two days ago had grown and grown, and threatened to dominate her mind to the exclusion of all else. Every little thing, such as the look on her husband's face half an hour ago, made her say to herself, as the earthquake-haunted man says at odd times through the day and night, Is this it? Has it come? And she saw before her no haven of peace. What was it now she really most feared? Simply the effect of the revelation on her husband's mind, an effect no human creature could make terms with. She was not the least afraid of anything he could say or do, delirium apart, but see what delirium had made of him. She was sure it was so, in that old evil hour, when he had flung her from him, and gone away in anger to try to get her sentence of banishment ratified. How could she guard against a repetition, in some form or other, of the disastrous errors of that unhappy time? As we know, she was still in ignorance of all the revived memories he had told to Vereker, but she knew there had been something, disjointed, perhaps, and not to be relied on, as the doctor had said, but none the less to be feared on that account. She had seen the effect of his sleepless night before he went away with Vereker, and knew it to be connected with mental disturbance outside and beyond mere loss of rest, and she had an uneasy sense that something was being kept from her. She could not but believe Jerry's cheerfulness was partly assumed. Had he been quite at ease about his recollections, surely he would have told them to her. Then this had all come on top of that Kreutzkammer one, the most upsetting thing of all, though, was the change that had come over him suddenly at breakfast, just after he had read aloud the name Herrick, a name he had seemed not free from memory of when her tongue was betrayed into speaking it, and the name Penderfield. If it was due to this last, so much the worst. It was the name of all others that was best for oblivion. How hard it seemed that it must needs force itself to the fore in this way! Its present intrusion into her life and surroundings was utterly unconnected with anything in the past. Sally's friendship with Letitia began at a music class six years ago. The Sales Wilsons were people to all appearance as un-Indian as any folk need be. Why must Sally's friend of all others be the object of its owner's unwelcome admiration? To think, too, how near she had been to a precipice without knowing it— Suppose she had come face to face with that woman again. To be sure, her intercourse with Ladbrook Grove Road was limited to one stiff exchange of calls in the season, still it might have happened. But where was the use of begging and borrowing troubles? Was it or was it not the fact, she asked herself, that now, after all these years, she thought of this woman as worse than her husband? the iniquity of the accomplice as more diabolical than that of the principal. 
She found she could not answer this in the negative off-hand. The paradox was also before her that that incorrigible amphibious treasure of hers, whose voice was even now shouting to her more timorous friend from beyond the selvage wave she had just contemptuously dived through, that that Sally, inexchangeable for anything she could conceive or imagine, must needs have been something quite other than she was, had she come of any other technical paternity than the accursed one she had to own to. Was there some terrible law in nature that slow forgiveness of the greatest wrong that can be wrought must perforce be granted to its inflictor, through the gracious survivor of a brutal indifference that would almost add to his crime if that were possible? If so, surely the universe must be the work of an almighty fiend, a demiurgus with a cruel heart, and this the masterstroke of all his cunning. But what in heaven's name was the use of bruising her brains against the conundrums of the great unanswered metaphysical sphinx? Better be contented with the easy vernacular solution of the rhymester. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, evils from circumstances grow. Because she felt she was getting no nearer the solution of her own problem, and was, if anything, wandering from the point. Another way of looking at the matter was beginning to take form, had hung about her mind and forsaken it more than once. Might it not be better, after all, to dash at the position and capture it while her forces were well under control? To pursue the metaphor, the commissariat might not hold out. Better endure the ills we have—of course Rosalind knew all that—than fly to others that we know not of. But suppose we have a chance of flying to others we can measure the length and breadth of, and staving off thereby an uncalculable unknown. She felt she almost knew the worst that could come of taking Jerry into her confidence, telling him boldly all about himself, provided she could choose her opportunity and make sure Sally was well out of the way. The concealment from Sally was the achievement whose failure involved the greatest risk. Her husband's mind would bear the knowledge of his story well or ill, according to the way in which it reached him. But the necessity of keeping her girl in ignorance of it was a thing absolute. Any idea that Sally's origin could be concealed from her, and her stepfather's identity made known, Rosalind dismissed as simply fantastic. A lady who had established herself below high watermark with many more books than she could read, and plant capable of turning out much more work than she could do, at this point fled for safety from a rush of white foam. It went back for more, meaning to wet her through next time, but had to bear its disappointment. Mrs. Arkwright, for it was Gwendolen's mamma, being driven from the shadow of the breakwater, cast about her for a new lodgment, and perceived one beside Mrs. Fenwick, whom she thought very well for the seaside, but not to leave cards on. "'Might she come up there beside you?' Rosalind didn't want her, but had to pretend she did, to encourage her advent. It left behind it a track of skeins and volumes which had trickled from the fugitive, but were recovered by a domestic and pronounced dry. Besides, they were only library books and didn't matter.' "'I haven't seen you since the other day on the pier, Mrs. Fenwick, "'or I wanted to have asked you more about that charming young couple, "'the Julian Atwoods. "'Oh, dear, I knew I should get the name wrong. "'Bradshaw. Yes, of course.' 
her vivid perception of what the name really is when apprised of it almost amounts to a paroxysm you see on the pier that day she made a bad blunder over those bradshaw people and thought she had consoled her conscience by admitting to her husband that she had mis le pied dans le plat still she thought if she was actually going to plump down on mrs fenwick's piece of beach she ought to do a little more apology by the by why is it that ladies of her sort always resort to snippets of french idiom whenever they get involved in a quagmire of delicacy or indelicacy as may be will gwendolen grow like her mother however that doesn't concern us now a little stiffness on rosalind's part was really due to her wish to be by herself but mrs arkwright ascribed it to treasured resentment against her blunders of two days since now she was a person who could never let anything drop a tugging person she proceeded to develop the subject really a most interesting story i need hardly say that my informants had given me no particulars very old friends of my husband's quite possible they really knew nothing of this young gentleman's musical gifts simply told my husband the tale as i told it to you just that the daughter of an old friend of theirs professor sales wilson the professor sales wilson of course quite a famous name in literature scholarship that sort of thing had run away with a shopman that was what my husband heard you know i merely repeated it wasn't it as things go rather a malicious way of putting it on their part mrs arkwright gave sagacious nods indicative of comfortable we know the world we live in and won't pretend relationships between herself and the speaker they advertised perfect mutual understanding on a pinnacle of married experience fancy there being any need for anything else between us they said their editor then supplied explanatory text of course there may have been a soupçon of personal feeling in the case bias pique whatever one likes to call it you know dear mrs fenwick but mrs fenwick waited for further illumination well you know i i suppose it's rather a breach of confidence only i know i shall be safe with you don't tell me any secrets mrs arkwright i'm not safe but mrs arkwright was not a person to be put off in this way not she she meant elucidation and nothing short of bayonets would stop her well really perhaps i'm making of it too much importance to talk of breaches of confidence after all it only amounts to a gentleman having been disappointed of course his relations would don't you see was it some man that was after tishy asked rosalind wondering how many more rejected suitors were wearing the willow about the haberdasher's bride she had heard of one only last night she was not putting two and two together i dare say everybody knows it and it's only my nonsensical caution but one does get so timorous of saying anything you know dear mrs fenwick however it's better to say it out now of course quite between ourselves you know it was mrs samuel herrick's son sir charles penderfield he's the present baronet you know father was in the army rather distinguished man i fancy her second husband was a clergyman here followed social analysis some of which rosalind could have corrected the speaker floundered a little among county families and then resumed the main theme 
"'Mrs. Herrick is a sort of connection of my husband's. "'I don't exactly know what, but then I never do know. "'Family is such a bore. "'And it was she told him all about this. "'I always forget these things when they're told me. "'But I can quite understand that the young man's mother, "'in speaking of it, you understand.' "'Oh, of course, naturally. "'I think my daughter's coming out. "'I saw her machine door move.' "'Rosalind began collecting herself for departure.' "'But, of course, you won't repeat any of this. "'But, of course, I know I can rely upon you. "'But, of course, it doesn't really matter.' "'A genial, superior tone of toleration for mankind's foibles, "'as seen by the two speakers from an elevation, "'comes in at this point juicily. "'It meets an appreciative response "'in the prolonged first syllable of Rosalind's. "'Certainly. I should never dream, etc., whose length makes up for an imperfect finish, a dispersal of context from which a farewell good morning emerges clear, hand in hand with a false statement that the speaker has enjoyed sitting here talking. Rosalind has not enjoyed it at all. She was utilising the Merpussy's return to land as a means of escape, because, had there been no Mrs. Arkwright, and no folk chatter, Sally would have come scrunching up the shingle and flung herself down beside her mother. As it was, Rosalind's, "'Oh, I am so glad to get away from that woman,' told a tale. And Sally's truthful soul interpreted the upshot of that tale as prohibitive of merely going away and sitting down elsewhere. She and her mother were in on a bound to have promised to meet somebody somewhere, say, for instance, Mrs. Vereker and her son and donkey-chair, Sally said it, for instance, seeing something of the sort would soothe the position, and the two of them met the three, or rather the three and a half, for we had forgotten the boy to whom the control of the donkey was entrusted, and whose interpretation of his mission was to beat the donkey incessantly like a carpet, and to drag it the other way. The last held good of all directions soever, which the donkey, who was small but by nature immovable, requited, by taking absolutely no notice whatever of his exertions. "'What's become of my step-parent? I thought he was going to take you for a walk.' So spoke Sally to Dr. Conrad, as she and her mother met the three others and the half. The doctor replied, "'He's gone for a walk along the cliff by himself. I would have gone.' The doctor pauses a moment till the donkey-chair is a few paces ahead, accompanied by Mrs. Fenwick. I would have gone, only, you see, it's just mother's last day or two. Sally apprehends perfectly, but he shouldn't have dropped his voice. He was quite distant enough to be inaudible by the octopus, as far as overhearing words went. But any one can hear, when a voice is dropped suddenly and words are no longer audible. Dr. Conrad is a very poor Machiavelli, when all is said and done. "'I can hear every word my boy is saying to your girl, Mrs. Fenwick.' This is delivered with exemplary sweetness by the octopus, who then guesses with diabolical acumen at almost the exact wording of her son's speech. Apparently no amount of woollen wraps, no double thickness of green veil to keep the glare out, no smoked glasses with flanges to make it harmless if it gets in, can obscure the goody's penetrative powers when invoked for the discomfiture of her kind. "'But does not my 
dear boy knows she continues gushily that i am always content to be alone as long as i can be sure that he is happily employed elsewhere i am a dull old woman i know but at least my wish is not to be a burden that was the wish of my great-aunt eliza your great-great-aunt conrad you never saw her in her last illness i borrow her expression not to be a burden the octopus having seized her prey in this tentacle was then at liberty to enlarge upon the unselfish character of her great-aunt reaping the advantages of a vicarious egoism from an hypnotic suggestion that that character was also her own the great-aunt had it appeared lost the use broadly speaking of her anatomy and could only communicate by signs but when she died she was none the less missed by her own circle whose grief for her loss took the form of a tablet the speaker paused a moment for her hearers to contemplate the tablet and perhaps ask for the inscription when sally saw an opening and took advantage of it dr conrad's going to be very selfish this afternoon mrs vereker and come with us to chalk where that dear little church is that looks like a barn i mean to find the sexton and get the key this time my dear i shall be perfectly happy knitting do not trouble about me for one moment i shall think how you are enjoying yourselves when i was a girl there was nothing i enjoyed more than ransacking old churches and so forth rosalind felt almost certain that sally either said or telegraphed to the doctor who was wavering you'll come you know now mind two-thirty punctual and resolved if he did not come to go to iggledon's and extract him from the tentacles of his mamma and remain entangled herself if necessary in fact this was how the arrangement for the afternoon worked out dr conrad did not turn up as expected and rosalind carried out her intention she rescued the doctor and sent him round to join her husband and sally promising to follow shortly and catch them up the three started to walk but Fenwick, after a little slow walking to allow Rosalind to overtake them, had misgivings that she had got caught, and went back to rescue her, telling Sally and the doctor it was no use to wait, they would follow on and take their chance. And the programme so indicated was acted on. End of chapter 40